Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 9. Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. God, through the words of Solomon, continues to direct us towards wisdom and urge us by all means to pursue, pursue getting it. Here is further ridicule of fools by King Solomon. Again, it reads, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Fools cannot be trusted as sources of truth or of wisdom. Drunkards hurt themselves with thorns. Fools hurt themselves with parables and words. Drunkards are insensitive to pain and fools are oblivious to their own ignorance. The lesson is simple. Fools are unfit teachers of wisdom. They will shame themselves trying to interpret sayings of wise men, especially God's word. And Peter warned us also about learning things and taking things from, from such men. Here he says in 2 Peter 3, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. Fools lack the humility and the revelation by the Holy Spirit to provide trustworthy interpretation of God's word. Fools are lazy, and their little study is only to confirm their own thoughts. But their doctrine and actions are shameful. When they open their mouths, everyone knows they are fools. They take the words of the wise and pierce themselves by misinterpreting and misapplying them. On the contrary, words of truth and wisdom are plain to those that understand and, and have the right to understand the knowledge that God's given them. God has not hidden them for those that fear him. Proverbs 8 says, All the words of my mouth are righteousness. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Truth and wisdom are precious, the chief things to seek in life. If you wish to seek wisdom and be able to have the sweetness of God's Proverbs be on your lips, then you must be humble before God. And this is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. You must tremble before his word and believe every word that is pure. Then beg him for the wisdom that you do not have. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing. present to us in the book of James, and we pray that your wisdom and your spirit would be here with us. Make the truths that are here come alive to us. Open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Help us to identify our sin, to repent of it, to confess it, 
and to repent of it, and to turn to you in faith, in a lively faith, a faith that works, a faith that is effective, a faith that is profitable. Father, we ask that your gospel may be evident in our lives, that our faith may not be dead or vain. Father, we pray that you would fill us with light, fill us with truth, fill us with joy, and fill us with love. Father, we pray that you would bless this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we come to a very familiar text in the book of James. And it is a text that has been the subject of countless hours of theological debate. Because in this text, James appears to contradict Paul. Paul teaches very plainly that we are saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Yet in James, in our text today, three times he says, Faith without works is dead. And he also says that Abraham and Rahab were justified by works. Towards the end of this message, I, I, I plan to get into this a bit, and we're going to dive we'll d- dive into it. But first, we, we need to study what James is saying in context. And I want to briefly review the big picture here. It was helpful that Cameron decided to read from James this morning in our New Testament reading, because that's part of this context that we are in. James is writing this before Paul is even in the picture. Uh, Paul is not even a Christian yet. James is writing this immediately after the stoning of Stephen. Paul was there, but he was affirming, and, and, and he was in favor of the stoning of Stephen. And Paul was about to get his marching orders and then pursue the church, even up to Syria, which is where he was converted. But at this time, James is writing to the church that is dispersed, the, the church in the diaspora. So he's not writing this at, in reaction to Paul's teaching. He's not trying to counteract a false understanding of Paul because Paul is not even a Christian yet. Paul hasn't written the epistles in which he talks about faith. Oh, faith alone saves us, not by works. So so James is not writing this in reaction to this. James is writing this to the church, and it's a a Jewish church. It's a a heavily Jewish church. James is a a Jewish epistle. He doesn't talk about the the problems between the Gentiles and the Jews, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, because the church was predominantly Jewish at the time James was writing this book. So that's the first big picture item. The second big picture item, the other one that I want to talk about, is just the flow of the book. How did we get to this context of, of what, how do we get to this topic? James is very concerned that the church continue to behave as the church, despite this persecution. Don't get overly worked up. Don't be reactionary. Don't be like the zealots. His counsel is to patiently endure. Chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. His counsel is to persist in mercy ministry. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. 
And this mercy ministry is to be evident even down to their social interactions within the body of the church. In, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, do not show partiality to the rich because that is a breaking of God's law. Verses 8 through 13, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And this, this, is, this is how we got to this text. That's, that's what James is talking about. He's saying, you be patient, you continue to act like Jesus. Love your neighbor. Keep the royal law. Be kind and gracious and merciful to the humble. That's the context in which James now starts to talk about faith and works. And his primary concern here is, is faith, not works. He's talking about faith, faith, faith. That's what he's talking about in these verses. Verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? James is characteristically practical. He's concerned with usefulness. The question that he opens with is, does this profit? What does it profit? How valuable is this? What, what gain is there in this? What's the problem James identifies? He's identified that there's an incongruity between words and actions. He has, this is a constant drumbeat through James. Speaking and doing. What's the problem? This incongruity between words and actions. And his conclusion is scary. He's making this a salvation issue. What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? And then he gives us an example, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily bread, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? What good is it? You, you see the need, you recognize it with your words, and you do nothing. We need to define works here. James is talking about the fruit of a living faith. James, he, this, this is by definition, and it's evidenced by his qualification. He says, he says, if he does not have, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, what, is, what are those works? What does that mean? He's identifying it with the mercy ministry, and it fits in line with, his, with what he's already broadly defined for us, the patience and adversity, the visiting of the widows and the orphans, and loving the brotherhood without partiality. That's what works are. That's what James is talking about. So you need to affirm faith in Christ 
and combine that with mercy ministry, with faithful love. And James concludes that this kind of faith cannot save him, but is dead. Verse 17. This, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There's no usefulness in this kind of faith, because it's dead. Now this is an important category for us to, to wrap our heads around. The fact that people can have faith that is not alive. It, it's the fact that people can assent to true doctrine and be dead in their sins and condemned for eternity. That's what the scary part of this is. This, this is where we're given the warnings to watch out, to work diligently, to run the race faithfully. Because there is a kind of faith which is pointless and useless and unprofitable. A dead faith. This kind of language is covenantal language. And it fits really well with the covenantal imagery that we, re we find in the New Testament. When we read about the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. We are all engrafted into Christ. In Christ, in the, when, when the, the branches are engrafted into the vine, they can bear fruit. The mechanism for that to work is faith. But if that faith is dead, the branches wither and are fruitless. And if that happens, they run the risk of being cut off the vine and thrown into the fire. And it's the same imagery that Paul, Jesus uses that imagery in John 15, and it's the same imagery that Paul uses in Romans 11 with the olive tree. And the Gentiles being grafted into the, the, the olive tree. And the Jews being cut out of it. It is necessary for believers to understand this covenantal reality, this covenantal truth. Because that's where the problem exists. It exists within the community of believers, within the congregation of the saved. There's a kind of false faith, a dead faith that is hypocritical. And it masquerades as the true thing. It says, oh, I'm saved. It says, I'm, 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 I'm going to heaven. You can be a churchgoer all your life, go to church every Sunday, and not be saved. You still need Jesus. Because without Jesus, your faith is nothing. Without that vitality, that liveliness of your faith, that's evidenced in love, your faith is pointless, unprofitable, no good. And James knows that this sort of teaching is going to bring kickback, so he gives us a hypothetical argument. Verse 18. But someone will say, he says, I know, somebody's going to give an objection. But someone will say... You have faith, and I have works. And James answers, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
This verse is a declaration of the way a lot of religious people see the world. There's a perceived distinction between faith and works, a separation of the two. Many believers like to think about faith and works the way that the Bible talks about different gifts in the New Testament. Paul tells us that some people are teachers, and some people are prophets, and some people are evangelists, and some people are preachers, some people are generous, and others are theologians. We all fit together as a large mass of believers, the church, we're one body. So if the church as a body is compassionate, then all the members of the church can have their guilt alleviated. Because some Christian somewhere is doing some mercy ministry, I don't have to do it. Because I'm identifying with them as a Christian, and so I'm really doing it through other people. James says, that is a no-go. All saving faith has to be manifested in the life of the believer. There has to be evident works in your life if you are saved in Christ. It's a requirement for every believer who is going to be in heaven. When Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, he doesn't ask, did somebody else do this for you? He says, did you do this? That's how he judges. Did you bring water to the thirsty and food to the hungry and clothes to the naked? Did you comfort those who are distraught? Did you weep with those who are weeping? Is, is that what you did? Did you minister to me, is what Jesus is asking. There's no class of believer who gets a pass. Jesus himself was our Lord, the one in control of it all, the leader of us all, and he did this. Surely he could have delegated if anybody could, but no, he, he healed the sick. He had compassion on the multitude. He fed the thousands. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will become like him. And it will necessarily have evidence in your life. So this verse hits religious people. You can't separate out faith and works. That doesn't work. Another way this hits religious people is this. Some people think about their religion either in, words, in, in, in terms of works or faith. And this is about what do you put your trust in? Many people think that they are saved because they trust in their own works. Are you going to heaven? I hope so. I'm a pretty good person. I do this, and I do that, and I do that. And religious people are particularly prone to this fault. That's what the Pharisees did. Look at what I do. I tithe, and I pray, and I sit in the right places, and I know the right people, and I have a good reputation. Yeah, I, I must be pretty good. I'm, pretty, I'm saved. He has faith in his works. And others put their faith in doctrine. They put their faith in knowledge. They put their faith in faith. Not in Jesus. In faith. They say, 
I believe, and I know what I believe, and because I know what I believe, I'm saved. My knowledge saves me. They, they can tell you all day long about the doctrines of faith, the doctrines of salvation. They can quote you Bible verses. They can talk about covenantal theology. And they can talk about Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism. And, 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 and then all the various heresies, they, know they, can, they can pick it out a mile away. Are you saved? Yes. Why? Well, because I know how salvation works. Well, that's all well and good, but unless you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that is effective in changing you, changing your heart and making you willing to do what he tells you to do, which is love your neighbor, bring food to the hungry, clothe the naked, then it's worthless. Faith in faith is not faith in Jesus. And to both of these categories, James says, nothing doing, no good, no salvation. You cannot separate out faith versus works. There is no way to have faith without works. And true good works cannot be done outside of faith. Works are evidence of faith. There's no way to know what faith that faith is real unless there are works. And there's every reason to doubt the validity of faith if it is lacking in works. So James is giving us orthodox theology on faith and works. And he hits the errors square on the head. He hits it both ways. And next he gives us a dire warning about demon faith in verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So we need to recognize several things here. He's being a little sarcastic. Even the demons believe and tremble. When he says, you do well, he's being sarcastic. Because he's not really telling them they're doing well. What he's saying is, you're like the demons. Demon faith is intellectually orthodox. Demons are brilliant. They're smart. They've been around a lot longer than any of us have. They know their Bible in and out. They know who Jesus is. They recognized him immediately when he came into their presence. And they know all about God. Demons are intellectually orthodox. But knowledge cannot save you. Because demons are manifestly not saved. There's a place where they're going. The Bible tells us it's not a good place. It's a lake of fire. That's prepared for them. Demons believe, but they don't love God. They know who God is, but they don't love God, they don't trust Him, and they don't rest in Him. He makes them scared. He, they tremble because of Him. 
And in this, James says, at least they're having a reaction compared to the complacent, self-righteous believer who has a hypocritical faith. Those who rest on either their works or their doctrine and say, yeah, I'm pretty good. They think they know God and they don't tremble. They don't fear God. And the third thing here is that demon faith does not change them. They believe who God is and they remain rebellious. They remain hard-hearted. They remain set against Him. You cannot enter into a relationship with Jesus and not be changed. Not if you understand the gospel. Not if His Spirit has changed your heart. If you believe the gospel, if you understand it, you must grasp the magnitude of His love. How much He sacrificed for you. How much He cares about you. How much mercy has been poured out on you. What did you do? What did you bring into this equation? Well, you saved. That's about it. And Jesus comes along and takes that sin and dies for it and loves you despite your sin and loves you while you are yet in your sin and calls you out of that hard-hearted rebellion and says, Look, I have provided a way for you to have peace with God. When we understand how great our debt is and how deep God's love is, we're blown away by the grace that God has shown to us. And it necessarily transforms our lives. You must love Him for what He has done for you. He forgave you. He intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. He prays for you. He cares about what's going on in your life. He ordains everything that comes to pass so that all things happen for good for you. And because you love Him because of what He has done for you, and you have been purchased by Him, you confess your, His Lordship over your life. You submit yourself to His rule. You necessarily start to obey Him. You've switched sides. Now you, every, everybody is in progress. Every man alive on the earth is, in, is, is, is a being in, in progression, becoming. The question is, is what are you becoming? Are you becoming like Jesus? Or are you rebelling against Him and becoming like a damned individual that will burn for eternity? Which are you? But in Jesus, you start becoming like Him. You necessarily start to obey Him. And now we've come full circle in James. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he summarized those commandments in the two great commandments. And James 
speaking of partiality, which we just came off of, said, if you really fulfill the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. We start doing this. And next, James gives us some explanations of justification by works with Abraham and Rahab. As if what he has said isn't enough, now he's going to defend it from Scripture. Verses 20 through 26. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James shows incredible wisdom, and he selects these two examples from the Old Testament scriptures, Abraham and Rahab. Now, Abraham was the cream of the crop. He was the highest echelon of Judaism. I mean, he was the father of all Israelites. And, and he was the beginning of the covenant. And Rahab was a Gentile prostitute in Jericho. So he's taken a man who's at the top and a woman who's at the bottom, but both Abraham and Rahab are known in Scripture and explicitly spoken of in the Old Testament. They're known for their faith, that they are justified, that they are made right with God. They're known for the, that. So, so James shows incredible wisdom in selecting these two examples to defend his argument. But now when we get to his argument, we have to identify a, a couple of things. When it comes to faith and works, there are two keys of interpretation to this passage that we must identify. First, we need to define the word justified. And second, we need to highlight the important clarification that we find in verse 22. Which reads, do you see the faith that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? So James is clarifying what he just said there. But first we need to talk about this word justified. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Justified is a theological term that is used very specifically in systematic theology. And it fits hand in glove, usually with the way that Paul uses the term. But it has to do with soteriology, or, or the science, or the study of how it is that we are saved. So within systematic theology, justified means that one is judicially declared righteous before God. That's what it means to be justified, is to, to be, have that, that declaration of, of righteousness or not guilty before God. 
We cannot use that definition in this text for justified. In this text, it means that one is shown to be righteous. Or his righteousness is manifested. Which is exactly what James is talking about. When he says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's what James is talking about when he says justified. It's the manifestation of that category of righteousness. So God declares us righteous in faith. And that faith is then completed in our works. And this, this is that clarification that we get in verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect, made whole, made complete? The works that James identifies here are works that are done necessarily hand-in-hand hand with faith. James could not have obeyed God's command, I mean, sorry, Abraham could not have obeyed God's command to sacrifice Isaac unless he had faith. But he did, he had faith, and therefore he obeyed the command. And God provided a substitutionary ram. Even in the example he uses, he, he quotes, Abraham believed God and it was accounted for, to him for righteousness. That happened before Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Abraham's sacrificing of Isaac was his justification of his faith by works. Because these things are so, because this is true, Faith without works is dead. Just like the body without the spirit is dead. And that's what James concludes this matter with. You cannot presume upon doctrine for salvation. You must put your life in your faith. You must put your money, your mouth, your wallet, and your hands and feet to the labor of faith. So what about Paul? What about Paul? We read in many places about Paul's pitting of works against faith. Romans 3.28 Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or the works of the law. Romans 11.5 and 6 Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace... And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What he's talking about there is work earns wages. Grace bestows gifts. He's saying our salvation is a gift. It's not a wage of work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
When Paul's talking about the works of the law, what he's talking about is specifically what we talked about earlier as what James says when he says, someone will say, I have works and you have faith. That dichotomy there. Paul's talking about the problem of those who place their faith in a system. Of those who trust in their own works to save them. If they're trying to earn their salvation. To merit it. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, he does not pit faith against works that way. He says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The end or goal of salvation. The point of salvation. Why God saves you and me is so that we will do good works. But those are an outflow of, of faith. They're not a, a means to faith. Finally, Paul regularly points to the necessity of good works for believers. And this is evident throughout his epistles. In his exhortations to quit sinning and to do good. In his specific instructions to children, to slaves, to masters, to husbands, to wives, to elders, and to church members. In passages where he exhorts them to run the race, to fight the good fight. In Galatians 5 verse 6, he pits circumcision, a work of the law, against faith. But notice the qualification that he makes. And this is... This just hits it right on the head. Galatians 5 or 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. What's that mean? Avails anything. They don't work. What do they profit? They don't profit. What profits? But faith working through love. That's exactly what James is saying. James and Paul are on the same page. They say things in a little bit different way. They might emphasize different aspects. They're talking to different communities. But they're both servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're both deeply concerned with loving him and doing what he commands. Faith and works. I leave you with this passage from 1 John, which captures the heart of James' text. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal to us the difficult things in the scripture. We thank you that you delineate for us true faith and false faith. Father, we pray that you would call us to repentance for any hypocrisy in our hearts or lives. 
We pray that you would fill us with true and abiding love for you and for our neighbor. Grant that we may practice the mercy that you call us to. Help us to display our faith in the works of love. Father, now we conclude as you taught us to pray. some sort of ethereal, cosmic head game that we play with ourselves to make ourselves feel better. It's not, as some bumper stickers say, the opiate of the masses. No, it is not that. Our God is the true God of heaven and earth. Jesus is real and really came down to pay for your sins and for mine. He was really resurrected and is reigning right now at God's right hand in heaven. And we are united to him. And when we are united to him, our reality is changed. We are grafted into the tree and we bear fruit. We are grafted into the vine and we are alive. But take warning and repent of all hypocrisy. There is no salvation in dead faith. Fruitless branches are cut off and thrown into the fire. But the promise of the gospel is real. Repent and believe. Here at this table we receive real bread and real wine. And we receive real promises and real assurances. We remember Jesus and we proclaim him to the world. Eat and believe. Drink and take heart, and let Jesus change you, and be fruitful for him. Be justified by your works. Let your faith be evident to all in mercy and obedience. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.